listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. It's a grand slam. I'm telling you. Welcome back to the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined not only by my regular co-host, Keaton DeRocher of Over the Monster and the Dynasty Guru, uh, but today we have a special guest from SoxProspects.com, Ian Kundal, the director of scouting over there. You can find Ian on Twitter at, at Ian Kundal. Ian, welcome back to the pod. I, I think that you are now our most frequent podcast. Well, I'm honored. I really enjoy the podcast, and it's uh, it's always fun to get to talk some Red Sox baseball with you guys. Yeah, especially uh, this season, right? It's a it's an extra special <laughs> year for everybody. <laughs> I'm thoroughly enjoying the games I'm watching. I'm only watching the alternative site, but it's been very enjoyable to watch. <laughs> the alternative site and the Padres, right? You're yeah, getting oh, your, you know your, I'm a big Padres fan. <laughs> you're getting your Silo fix and your Tatis fix, so that's really nice. Don't forget Trent Grisham. That's right. It's your boy, Trent Grisham. Um, Keaton, how are you? Doing great, man. Back in Chicago. Ready to rock. Nice. Living the dream. All right. (laughs) So we've got a good squad here today for you. um, And we're going to be focusing a lot on this episode on the trade deadline. Um, The trade deadline is approaching for Major League Baseball on August 31st. So exactly a week from when we are recording this podcast. Uh, We're recording it. What is it? Seven o'clock on a Monday night, um, and we're going to start right off at the top with the deal that was made between the Red Sox and Phillies. Um, they were the first two teams to strike a deal um, during this uh, upcoming trade deadline. They sent Brandon Workman and Heath Hembry, as well as Cash, uh, and it seems like more Cash later, or a player to be named later, to the Phillies for Nick Pavetta and Connor Siebold. So um, before we get into the particulars of the players... Um, I wanted to get both of your reactions to the trade when they made it. Like gut reaction, good trade, bad trade, um, surprised that these players were involved or kind of was this what you were expecting? Uh, Ian, let's go to you first. I I really like the trade for the Red Sox and I'm not surprised that it's a trade they made. Um, It fits something the Rays would do and that's kind of how I'm viewing um, a lot of high and bloops deals is kind of what would the Rays have done in this situation and if we know anything about them, it's that they would trade middle relievers if they can get guys under team control for longer and who could potentially be starters. And that's what they did in the situation. You know, they traded a guy in Workman who has a month and a bit left on his contract. And then uh, Heath Embry has one more year of control, but they got Nick Pavetta, who's got three or four years, depending on if they want to play some roster manipulation games with him. And then Connor Siebold, who's a prospect in the high minors. So I like it for them a lot. All right, nice. Uh, Keaton, what was your reaction to the trade? I'm not a big fan of Pavetta, so I wasn't super thrilled. But as Ian kind of laid out there, I get the reasons for making it. And if they can unlock something with him like they've done with Martin Perez, then maybe they have something. I'm just not confident that they will. So I'm just I'm not sure how Pavetta ends up fitting in. Um, but for giving up the guys that you did to kind of take a low-risk, high-reward deal, uh, it seems what this team should be doing. 
Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. I do like the trade for the Red Sox um, because these guys are, you know, in Heath Hembree, very replaceable. And in Brandon Workman, he's going to be gone in a month, like Ian said. So that made a whole lot of sense to me. Um, when I heard it was with the Phillies before I heard the players involved, I was a little disappointed because the Phillies don't have a great system. But of course, for these two guys, you're not expecting to get like a top prospect back. Um, Nick Pavetta is the one I want to talk about first, though, because he's super interesting in that he's a guy who has pretty good stuff, um, but he just hasn't really been able to fully unlock it yet. Um, I've been workshopping this idea kind of here with Keaton and with Matt that the Red Sox aren't necessarily bad at developing pitchers. Sometimes they're bad at develop or getting uh, the right guys in the system. So, Ian, I want to ask you. Do you think that the Red Sox could potentially unlock something here with Pavetta uh, that could make him a valuable starter for this Red Sox team? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's always a chance. I, I think a better way to I would have phrased it is to make a valuable pitcher because I'm not sure necessarily if it is in this as a starting role. Like it could be as, you know, like a Jalen Beeks type uh, mm-hmm. three inning swing man. But I think there's definitely a chance that they could make him a valuable pitcher. Sure. Because, I mean, he's a type of guy that it's very intriguing raw talent, and you can see why teams have been interested. I mean, he's, this is the what he was traded for Jonathan Papelbon um, back in the day to get to the Phillies, and the Phillies gave him a bunch of chances, and then eventually he got traded, obviously, in this one. And there's a reason teams keep taking a shot on him. You know, you're, it's not often you find guys with his build that throw as hard as he does, he does with as good a breaking ball, but there's other issues that obviously hold him back. That kind of makes him the cream filling in a Red Sox closers Oreo, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess it does. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> that's that's pretty weird. Um, but th- let's talk about that second point. The Red Sox have been successful in this, and this is something you guys laid out on your podcast, the, the Sox Prospects podcast. If you don't listen to that, it's with Ian and Chris Hatfield. You should definitely check it out. Um, Keaton and I are both regular listeners. Um, but it, Eduardo Rodriguez, when he got here, he was kind of a mess, obviously a guy with a much better pedigree, but they have been able to uh, manipulate how pitchers are throwing and get them to throw different pitches or maybe, um, you know, balance out their repertoire a little bit. So they're throwing pitches that aren't effective for them less. I mean, can you talk about some examples of them having success in that regard? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. I, I think that, um, I mean, we're seeing it this year. I think, as you, I think you alluded to it earlier, Martin Perez is a good example of that. They've pretty much completely remade his arsenal, and he's turned into a guy who I think has probably been their best pitcher or most consistent this year. I think Evaldi's been good too, but Perez has, other than I think his first start, has been pretty solid this year. And um, they're doing it a lot with a bunch of different guys uh, this year. And as you said, they're all guys they kind of have got from outside the org, you know, the Phillips, Valdez, Josh, Josh Osich types. They're kind of bringing them in, tweak a few pitches here and there, maybe drop one pitch, add a new pitch, stop throwing fastballs, start throwing sinkers, little things like that. Um, and then even like guys, uh, some of the in, in the in the system uh, examples of it. I mean, you, you see it with guys like Tanner Houck where they tried to do it and it didn't necessarily work. They tried to add um, changes, breaking ball to more of a slider, throw more four seam fastballs. He didn't take to that. Then on the flip side, you look at guys like Kyle Hart and um, Thad Ward, who are both guys that added cutters uh, last year, and they immediately became their best secondary pitch. And then Brian Mott is another example of that. He's someone who, going into last season, was a fastball, curveball, changeup guy, and then he added a, a slider, cutter, depends who you talk to, what it is, 
um, d- during the uh, 2019 season, and that gave him a lot more confidence and something that could get lefties out, and that's kind of really ch- changed his trajectory too. So I think it's something that they're really emphasizing more, and I think it's you see it more in the upper minors though. Um, it's something they like to let their guys have a couple years of kind of working with what they have. And I, I think that makes sense because it's hard to tell, you know, someone you just drafted or just acquired that we want to change your arsenal completely. You know, it's easier, obviously, for the guys who have jumped around a little bit, the career minor leaguer types. But for a draftee, it's a little harder. But after a couple of years, if they're kind of stagnated, it's definitely something they've gotten pretty good at. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's a good skill for an organization to have, for sure. Um, Connor Siebold, though, um, he's a really interesting player, somebody who had a lot of success at the Arizona Fall League last year. He's the name I'm excited about. I don't know a ton about him. So, Ian, what can we expect from Seabold as we get him into the fold of this system? Yeah, he was someone who, it was funny, uh, the day of the trade, I was just talking to some scouts about the Phillies because it seemed like the Phillies were going to be looking for bullpen help. And it just kind of, you put two and two together and it seemed like a fit. And uh, the name that they all kept bringing up, that scouts kept bringing up to me was Connor Siebold. And he was someone, I'll be honest, I knew very little about. Um, You know, if you look at, he's not really on many of the industry top prospect lists. I don't think he's in anyone's top 20, or he might be in one list top 20. But he was kind of an under-the-radar guy, and they were all like, no, this guy's very good. And um, so that kind of got me to dig a little more. And yeah, it's it's he's really interesting. Um, you know, it's a good a- athletic frame. There's not a lot of projection. He's like 6'2", 180, but it works for him. He's got a, he repeats his delivery well, and he's just a really good pitcher. You know, he throws a ton of strikes. He's around the zone with his fastball. He can really locate it. It's a potential above average command profile, even though his velocity is more like 91, 93. He'll get up to 95 though, but it's more like low 90s. But he just he knows how to pitch. He throws quality strikes. And he's got a true major league quality out pitch with his changeup. You know, he throws like 82, 80 to 82 miles an hour. Good arm speed, same as his fastball. And it's got that nice separation you like to see, you know, 10 plus miles an hour from his fastball. And that's a potential plus pitch. And, you know, when you have a, if you can get like an average fastball plus changeup and then his slider, I've heard is like average-ish talking to scouts who've seen him, you know, 83 to 85 miles an hour. But it seems to play up a little bit. It's shown bat missing ability, like in the Arizona Fall League last year, as you alluded to, where he dominated. I believe he had a twenty-two to three strikeout to walk ratio in seventeen innings, and he gave up only—I want to say it was like nine hits or something—the entire season. And you know, you put that entire package together, and it's—it's it's not the sexiest package, but it's something that could play in you know a back end of a start rotation. And it's exactly what the Red Sox system, frankly, is lacking. You know, if you look in the high minors. Other than Brian Mata, who even hit, even though I think he, there's a chance he can start, he, there's still reliever risk with him. You know, you're jumping down to the next tier of guys. This guy's like Thad Ward, Tanner Houck, who I don't think is a starter at all. But Thad Ward has a chance. But, you know, there, there's a, there's not a lot of major league ready or close to major league ready safe pitching. And while Seaball doesn't have the most upside, he's someone that you could easily envision, you know, holding out a spot on a rotation for three, four, five, six years. So as we're looking at this guy, I mean, I'm going to open this up to, to both you and Keaton here. What do you see the role uh, for these two players as as they settle in with the Red Sox? I Obviously, Seabold has some developing still to do. Um, I guess, uh, Keaton, what do you expect from Nick Pavetta with his role this year? And then Ian, uh, what do you expect from Seabold? What do you think his timeline is? We'll go to Keaton first. Yeah, that, I mean, the Jalen Beeks role makes a lot of sense. I wouldn't be surprised if it's either as a follower or uh, an actual, like, giving him start knowing the first three innings or so. But what the Red Sox are doing right now is they're just mixing together so many different combinations of people in the bullpen that 
um, having him maybe give a little bit of stability to that um, and lock down one of those spots, I think can only help them. So I expect that's probably going to be it, just the way that um, they've deployed the arms so far, other than the uh, obvious uh, Perez and Ivaldi. Nobody else really goes more than three. So he'll probably fit that role, um, either as a follower or a starter. All right. I like it. And uh, what's the timeline for Seabold, Ian? I think he's someone that you could see realistically, like, middle, end of next season. I don't think we'll see him this season, mainly because he's not on the 40-man roster and there's no need to add him. He's not like he's Rule 5 eligible or anything in the offseason because he was a 2017 draftee. So he's got some time before he needs to be added um, to those lists. Um, so I, th- I believe he'll be Rule 5 eligible, I want to say, next offseason, but I'm not 100% positive. But either way, he's not on the 40-man now, and I don't think he'll get added. But, I mean, I wouldn't rule out Maybe he pushes for a spot at the end of next season. At, excuse me, in uh, at the beginning of next season. I think the tough thing to say is what's going to happen in the off season. You know, is there going to be some sort of fall league where he can get innings in games? Because right now, while the, what the Red Sox are doing at the alternative site is better than nothing, it's still at the end of the day just like live BP. Yeah, you know, they're not playing. It's not a game situation. You're not. You don't have umpires behind the plate. You're not playing. You're facing the same hitters day in and day out. And, you know, he's someone who last year had an oblique injury, so he only threw 50 innings. So he's not going to be able to be – or sorry, he threw, well, 56 innings in the regular season then 17 in the fall league. So it's not like he's going to be stretched out either. So I think he's someone that maybe, yeah, middle end of next year we could see and then with the eye towards grabbing a rotation spot come 2022. It'd be really nice if there was some sort of a fall league this year. It seems like that's something that, um, you know, reading some articles in Baseball America, it seems like – it's kind of unlikely because some teams don't want to kind of shell out the cash to send players there and do all that stuff. And unfortunately, baseball has sort of taken this tact lately where it basically doesn't want to upset the balance. So if some clubs want to spend and other clubs don't, they go with the clubs that don't want to spend and and don't do these things that are good for player development. I mean, what's your read on the upcoming fall league? Do you think it's going to happen? And do you think that this mindset that's kind of pervasive in baseball is, is going to go away anytime soon? Unfortunately, I don't. I mean, I, I think we started seeing it a few years ago when a few teams started cutting back their scouting departments and just transitioning more towards video. And I, I only think that is just going to be made worse by the pandemic. I mean, currently there's a that major league scouts, for example, are not allowed to go to either the alternative sites or the big league games which just doesn't make any sense to me because there's, they would never interact with the players and there, there's no risk of them. And maybe you don't let them travel, but there's almost every team has a scout based in the city that could get to a game. The problem is there are the few teams that have basically furloughed their entire scouting departments that have no interest in giving another team an advantage. Mm-hmm. So as you said, it's kind of becoming a race to the bottom where those few teams that don't want to do anything are the ones that control because at the end of the day, Rob Manfred has to answer to all 30 owners. And if, you know, two of them don't want to do it, they're part of the 30 and that's who they're going to go with, which is really frustrating. And yeah, I think I just don't see how a fall league is possible. You know, there's still, obviously we haven't even mentioned it, but the virus is still a problem. Obviously Mm -hmm. throughout the country, it's pervasive. Um, We've seen this year, how hard it is even within following major league protocols to keep the virus out of major league clubhouses. I can't imagine what would happen in a fall league situation where the, there's no way they're going to shell out for the type of testing or the um, the accommodations that would be necessary to create any sort of bubble or even probably to follow what they're doing at the major league level. So I just don't think it's 
realistic. I mean, I think best case you're looking at is maybe they let individual teams run some sort of um, fall instructional league like they do, maybe probably not in Florida, but even that, if a couple teams don't want to, I could see baseball just prohibiting it for, as you said, because if, you know, three teams don't want to, it's not, they'll say, well, it's not fair if the other 27 teams are allowed to. Mm-hmm. So I really don't know. And it's, it's, there's a lot of, I don't, I don't know what minor league baseball is going to look like next year either. So it's just the whole thing is a mess right now. Yeah. A lot of things up in the air right now. Um, I want to get back to what this does to the roster long-term though, because um, this is a really encouraging move for me to see Heim Bloom make, bringing in two guys who could potentially be back-end rotation guys, or in the case of Nick Pavetta, if that continues not to work out, um, you know he could be a pretty decent bullpen piece if they work with his pitch mix a little bit. But Seabold is really interesting in that regard because what that can do to a roster is really interesting. Keaton and I have been talking about what the next good Red Sox team could look like. And we were sort of imagining a healthy Chris Sale coming back, um, Eduardo Rodriguez being recovered from his uh, heart issue, um, and then potentially signing a a big-time free agent. But then at the back end of that, the rotation next year could potentially – Still include Nadia Avaldi making $17 million and Martin Perez making $6.25 million if they do pick up that club option for him. Um, the interesting thing there is that that's $23 million for what could potentially be your four and five starters. It's not a great way to spend resources. So, I mean, I, I, I want to open this up to you, you two. I mean, what does it do? to your team and the ability for you to shift resources around if all of a sudden you can have somebody making the major league minimum in that four four or five rotation spot rather than having to shell out all this money for those spots. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big difference. It really uh, gives a lot more flexibility to the roster. And uh, something that we've consistently talked about is now for essentially like two years, the Red Sox have tried to work some sort of like bullpen day or so like an opener situation, but they just don't have the pitching staff or the bullpen built to really do it effectively. Uh, but having that financial flexibility, I mean, they could actually add bullpen pieces that could be those like multi-inning swingman guys, uh, like perhaps a Darwin's and Hernandez type there, and actually kind of deploy a strategy like that effectively. Um, versus having all of that money tied up in your starting uh, rotation and then them just not putting any resources in towards the bullpen. So I think it gives them, it would give them a lot more flexibility in how they construct the pitching staff as a whole uh, versus just kind of being stuck with what they have. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. And I mean, as we've talked, I'm sure you guys have talked about, you know, the reason they're in the situation they are where they had to trade Mookie Betts for fine to reset the tax was because. They had they were they didn't have any pitching coming through the pipeline or really any prospects, and they didn't have those minimum salary guys to balance out you know the big earners. And if you can have you know Siebold making the minimum, Pavetta and Arb one in those four and five spots, or even as like a swingman type, you can still pitch a hundred innings instead of you know someone making five million dollars. That's a big difference, and you know it really allows for a much more balanced roster. And which is something the Red Sox struggled with under Dave Dombrowski. You know, you, you were often ran into a situation where somewhere had to give because you're paying, you know, guys off the bench, like $4 million guys at the back of the rotation, $10 million, you know, when things like that happen, it just really sets up everything off balance. And 
they need to start developing homegrown players in order to bring the roster back into balance and to be able to pay guys like Raphael Devers, Xander Bogarts, you know, Alex Verdugo eventually, um, JD Martinez, Chris Sale, those type of guys. Because you need the stars, but you also need a balanced roster in order to succeed. And that's what we're seeing. You know, the teams that are successful, the Dodgers, the Indians, the Twins, a lot of their roster is homegrown talent. And that's how they can go out and make those big splashy moves. Josh Donaldson trade for Mookie Betts and sign him to a 12-year deal. Things like that are all possible because they have those homegrown players making so little, taking up a vast majority of their roster spots. Yeah, and as as Alex wrote in his book, Homegrown, that was something that has you know, worked in the past for the Red Sox as well when they've had successful teams. Um, the other thing that, that stands out to me with this is just looking at teams that have had some good success developing uh, pitching depth, homegrown pitching depth. They're just so better able to absorb injuries. If they have injuries pop up in their rotation, the New York Yankees kind of stick out to me. If they have an injury, they can bring up a Jordan Montgomery or a Jonathan Loiza or you know some of these other guys who are pretty valuable pieces and they don't have to turn to these bullpen games and, you know, go out and try and trade for solutions. They already have these solutions and the Dodgers, it's almost embarrassing the amount of talent they have. I mean, they sent Tony Gonsolin down after two electric starts from him. So uh, it's, it's some, it's an area where you're, you're happy to see the Red Sox at. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the, the Dodgers, as you said, yeah, Gonsolin is funny. You said that because Gonsolin's pitching in a simulated game or in a simulated game right now in their taxi squad game. Like, <laughs> he would be what the Red Sox number two starter. I mean, I think, Maybe they're one, honestly. Could, and, and I think the Indians is another example of that. You know, they sent down Mike Clevenger and Zach Plesac, rightfully so, frankly. Yep, sure. But those two would be the best two pitchers on the Red Sox, so it's not close. And they haven't missed a beat because they called up Tristan McKenzie, who strikes out 10 guys in six <laughs> innings after not throwing a pitch in a game for like two years. You know, they have Adam Plutko, who he's not great, but he's better than Zach Godley. You know, they just had they just keep keep finding these guys. And Aaron Savali, another guy, came out of nowhere and looks like he's legit, like you know, top three starter on a team. You know, it's you need to be able to develop guys in order to balance it out, and the Red Sox just haven't done that. Well, they have; they're just on other teams, frankly. Let's be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we'll we'll be looking for them to uh, to to um, change that pitching um, their pitching woes, I guess, under Heim Bloom here. Um, I want to move off of these two guys in in this first trade to other likely trades that could potentially happen as we get closer to the deadline. What we're going to do is we're going to go through some groups of players. We've separated into uh, them into some different groups. We already kind of talked about this on some of the past pods, but we got a little bit more specific today into likely candidates, maybe candidates, unlikely candidates, and uh, the guys who I called untouchable candidates. And yes, Bogarts is in there. Um, <laughs> likely candidates, though. Let's get to some of these guys. Um, the group of four here uh, that I have as likely candidates for the Red Sox to trade are Kevin Pillar, Matt Barnes, Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, Mitch Moreland. Keaton, choose one of these guys and tell me why they're a good trade candidate or likely can- trade candidate. Um, only one. Uh, well, I'll go with Matt Barnes because um, pretty much every year at the trade deadline, we, there's just a rash of relief pitchers. And it's kind of like a mixed bag of, wow, I thought they'd get more for that guy or I can't believe they got that much for that guy. Uh, and he seems like the kind of candidate that he's uh, has experience closing, not all of it great, but has the experience. 
uh, racks up a ton of strikeouts. He is his issues with rock walks have kind of gotten way worse this year. Um, but he does have enough of a track record of being a pretty successful bullpen arm in a few different roles that a team that's just looking to shore up the back end of their bullpen could probably take a chance on him. It, I mean, it's just, it's also a weird year just because, like, um, I think it's going to be a slower deadline just because they're only getting these guys for a month versus a little bit more time. But, I mean, when you're chasing a World Series, perhaps that doesn't matter. So I think Barnes is – and, I mean, we already saw the Red Sox deal two relievers already. And it just kind of seems logical that he's just going to be next because teams are always looking for relief pitching, and uh, he's probably an inexpensive way to go in a season like this. Ian, just um, building on this point here, what would a return look like in your estimation for Matt Barnes, who is signed through 2021, or I guess I should say he's entering his final ARB year through 2021. So if a team is trading for him, they get him for this year, uh, this the rest of the season, and for next season. Um, is he a more valuable piece than a Brandon Workman type? Oh, definitely. Um, of the guys you just listed, he's the one you would get the most return for, in my opinion. Just having that extra year at a reasonable price um, is very important to other teams acquiring him. And especially since it seems the Red Sox are willing to eat money, which they absolutely should be doing um, in any trade. If they can buy down his years by a little, you know, buy down his salary for next year, even by a couple million, they'll get a much better return for him. Because while the Red Sox seem to be okay in terms of spending um, on guys this year, because they have some flexibility, you know, other teams are going to be probably more likely to be closer to the vest and not want to spend as much, but they still want to get better. And so they can buy a better prospect by doing that. And it's pretty clear that's what they did with the Phillies deal. I mean, by t- by giving them cash, I think they paid off, I want to say it was like 815000 out of the million due to the two guys for the rest of the season. Yeah, and Clintax said that was really important for him to stay under the tax next year. Well, exactly. And so that's why you're gonna, I think you're going to see teams be more and more frugal when it comes to things like that. And if the Red Sox are willing to splash the cash in that regards, which they have the flexibility to do now that they've traded bets and are significant, not significantly under, but they're under by several million dollars under the luxury tax line. They can do that. And, you know, if they can do that with Barnes, they could probably buy someone who would fit into the, their top 10 prospects in the system. I think you honestly could look at maybe like a, a Seabold type return for just him. Mm. Um, and, you know, if I was them, I would absolutely consider it, you know, Relievers, in my opinion, are the easiest to find. We've seen the – I hate to go back to the Rays, but it's where High and Bloom's from. They rebuild their bullpen like every year, and they just find these guys that come out of nowhere and turn them into legit relievers. And I just don't – I don't think, you know, if you're a team in the Red Sox position, they're not competing. Barnes is more valuable to teams in, that are competing for a World Series than he is to the Red Sox. They can find someone to eat those innings this year and then address in the offseason. So, yeah, I, I think he's someone who they could get a legit prospect back for. Yeah, I totally agree there. They're the most fungible asset on a baseball team. Um, Let's talk about these two outfielders, though. Uh, They're two really interesting cases. The more and more I think about it, I don't think that Jackie Bradley Jr. ends up getting traded just because of how much money he's making. Uh, He made $11 million this year, albeit prorated for COVID, um, so 37% of that, I guess. Um, And then Kevin Pillar, who signed for less than half of that amount, um, both of these guys are free agents after this year. Um, Kevin Pillar is the one who's actually playing well. Uh, Ian, I mean, who do you think that teams are going to be more interested in Pillar given the difference here in money and the fact that Kevin Pillar is actually hitting well? 
Oh yeah, I completely agree. I I don't think Bradley gets traded unless the Red Sox are willing to pay off maybe his entire salary. And even if they do that, they're not going to get much of a return, I think, for him. Pilar, on the other hand, as you said, he's performing well. And I think he has a defined role in a roster. You know, if you acquire Jackie Bradley, he's a great defender. But he, you're going to need a pinch hitter against lefties for sure. And you probably need a full-on platoon partner. And that's just kind of like, that's a hard thing for a lot of teams to have to do. Whereas Pilar is the quintessential fourth outfielder. He'll hit lefties. You can play him every day against lefties. You can play every outfield position. Good defender, solid clubhouse guy. His salary is not a lot. He's a, he's someone that I know teams would be interested in. And I think of the I think of this these four guys, I think he's well, I think Barnes should be I would like Barnes to be dealt because he get the most turn. I think Pilar is the most likely of these four to be dealt. I'd be shocked if he's still on the roster. I agree. Uh, yeah. It just yeah. doesn't make there's no and again, for the same reason, there's no purpose for him to be on the roster for the Red Sox. Yeah. Yeah. And the return there though likely would be pretty late for yeah. oh, You're not you're not getting you know, a Connor Siebold type or anything like that. You're probably looking at, you know, someone in, who's in the 20 to 30 range of an org, you know, yeah. just, just a flyer type. Well, more interesting arms. That's what I'm hoping for there. Um, Mitch Moreland though, Keaton, you, you and Ian both convinced me before the pod. I actually had him in the maybe candidates and you guys both convinced me to move Mitch into this, this, uh, category, the likely candidates. He's got a club option for 3 million uh, next year. He's been a little banged up this year, but when he has played, he's been tremendously effective. Um, why is he in the likely candidate uh, group for you, Keaton? Pretty similar to the same reasons that uh, Ian laid out. Pilar. I mean, he's the perfect platoon candidate for first base, which um, is surprisingly barren across the league. And it doesn't make a ton of sense for him to be on this particular roster. It makes a lot more sense for him to be with a contender. And he's hitting the crap out of the ball. So it should be pretty enticing. And he's relatively inexpensive this year and next year. So um, as far as like the, just the Red Sox roster construction, it doesn't make a ton of sense. And they can kind of maybe give uh, get Dahlbach up here and get some playing time at the corners uh, with that spot open. So it's for pretty similar reasons as Pilar that it just, with this current roster, it doesn't make a ton of sense. I wonder if he can be the Dodgers' Doug Minkiewicz. I mean, aren't they? They're playing like Matt Beattie and Edwin Rios in that position right now. Yeah. So. I think I think what Keaton said too at the end is very is something that needs to be emphasized. I think they need to do it more to give a chance to the young guys to see what they can do. You know, I'd much rather see like Michael Chavis, Bobby Dahlbeck, Jonathan Arouse yep. get all of the at bats in first and second base for September than mm. give them the Mitch Moreland and Jose Peraza. Because at the end of the day, those are the three guys that you need to figure out what their future is. You know, Peraza is a nice like bench player, but he shouldn't be starting for a team with the Red Sox aspirations and. Moreland has had a great season. He's a great, you know, clubhouse guy. He's just a com- competitor. Goes out there every day and does a great job hitting righties. But he's what thirty five right now. Yeah, you he's know, getting up there. It, they just the Red Sox need to find a younger option there, and they need to figure out what the deal is with Chavis. And then I think they do need to expose Bobby Dahl back to some get him some playing time this year. And the only way he's going to do that is at first base this year. So I think that it makes a lot of sense both. Yep. For their, for Moreland to give them a chance to chase another ring, and then for the Red Sox as a chance to kind of evaluate the internal options before they decide if they need to go outside the organization for a first baseman for next year. We talked about this uh, on a different pod, though. But you know, Matt and I actually speculated that Mitch Moreland is exactly the type of guy that's going to be part of like a multiplayer deal. He, he strikes me as like you'd send a reliever and Mitch Moreland to a contending team. 
You know, he's unlikely to be dealt by himself. Yeah, I could see that because that's also how you maximize your return. You know, if you package him and Barnes to a team, you're going to get more than if you just trade Moreland separately or, you know, you probably trade Barnes separately. You know, you combine the two and fill, fill a couple gaps for a team and eat the money and you get a decent player back. All right. So that's the first group, the likely candidates. Um, the maybe candidates are where I think the most interesting uh, stuff could happen here. And, um, you know, when Matt and I touched on some of the guys from this group, we were focusing a lot on Cleveland in those two pitchers who are sort of in the doghouse here. Um, but J.D. Martinez is in this group. He's due $19.35 million over the next two years. He can opt out. Nate Eovaldi, uh, overpaid by a lot, $17 million per through 2022. Martin Perez, club option, $6.25 million in 2021, has been the Red Sox' most consistent pitcher this year. And then Andrew Benintendi, $6.6 million next year, and then he enters his final RB year in 2022. Um, Ian, which of these is the most interesting trade candidate for you coming up to this deadline? I think it's Benintendi and it's not close. I, I, I don't think you trade J.D. Martinez because you're not going to get a lot for him. He makes a ton of money. He can opt out. It's just I, I just I, he's someone, frankly, that matches up with the timeline for Devers and Bogarts. And if you're going to keep those two and compete next year, which seems to be the stated goal, it, it just doesn't make sense for me to trade J.D. Martinez. Um, you said he evolved. I don't think he evolved. He, given his contract, it's in a pre-COVID economy. You know, it's a pretty re- it's overpay, but it's fine. Mm-hmm. Post-COVID, that's just too much money for a guy of his inconsistency and Perez. I think he's a usable arm and 6 million for him next year. Honestly, I think there's a very good chance they pick it up because he's, as we talked about earlier, he's been one of their, he's probably been their most consistent pitcher this year. And that moves us to Ben and kind of by default. It's the only one left for me. And he's just a tough one. Cause I don't know what to make of him. I was pretty down on him coming into the year. Cause I just, there were a lot of alarming signs based on his play last year. And I think we can all agree this year he's been he's been horrific. Yeah, that's and, an understatement for yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's a tough one because if they had traded him two years ago, they could have got a ton. You know, he had massive value two years ago. Yeah. But now, if you're you'll be trading him at kind of his you know his peak or his min minimum value, and I'm not sure if that makes sense. But at the same time, if someone is willing to offer you you know good value for him, I think you have to consider it because. It's easier, I think, as we've seen with Kevin Pillar. You know, you can find guys to play the outfield in a one-year deal for short money. Benintendi has three years or two years after this left, and if they can turn him into, you know, a mid-rotation or a better starter, I think you seriously have to consider it. Now, is this Kevin? Kevin, uh, I mean, I should say uh, Andrew Benintendi for um, Zach Plesac, uh pipe dream of mine. Is this is this potentially real? I mean, do you think they could go that avenue? I don't see why Cleveland would do it. I mean, if Cleveland would offer that him for Ben and Teddy, I don't think he would still be on the Red Sox. Because <laughs> yeah, if you they... can get Plesak for five years for Ben and Tendi, I mean, that's a no-brainer. But I don't know if that's a thing. Um, but I, I I mean, it makes a lot of sense if it was Andrew Ben and Tendi of two years ago. It's just, I'm not sure, like, is Andrew Ben and Tendi of this year a starting caliber outfielder? Oh, man, how the mighty have fallen, Like huh? I mean, I, I don't know I don't know if that's a serious... I, like I think it's a legitimate question now, because he he's done nothing this year. Like he's not yeah. hitting the ball hard. He can't drive the ball in the air. You know I don't know. Uh, it was right before he went on the disabled list. I want to say it was Red Sox stats tweeted out a video of every like time he's made contact this year, and it's just like all ground balls, 
or weak fly balls. You know, he's he's barreled one ball up this entire season, according to StatCast. And his average exit velocity is 85 miles an hour, which is down four miles an hour from last year. His launch angle has dropped like nine degrees. It's just all red flags. So I just, his K rate's up to 32%. It's just a lot of red flags. Maybe some some of it was he was playing through an injury. We don't know that. It's a weird year. You know, his routine might have been disrupted. But yeah, I, I don't know what to do with him. It's a, it's a predicament. I'm guessing the Red Sox did not envision they would ever find themselves in this year. Yeah, this is a confusing one to me too. And and I guess this is a question for, for you as, you know, the scouting director at Sox Prospects. How do we go from Andrew Benintendi as a 2020 guy and a guy who some scouts threw a seven on his hit tool to the Andrew Benintendi that we're seeing right now? Is it confidence? Is it in need of change of scenery, injury, mechanical? I mean, is it a mixture of all these things? It's It's super confusing. Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to say without, you know, interacting with him day in and day out. But I do think there's some some confidence has to be a part of it. You know, last season obviously wasn't as good as 18. It was still, like, decent enough. But there were some red flags, you know, the ri- rising strikeout rate, walk rate dropped a little bit. But his exit velocity did go up. And, you know, his launch angle did also. And so I, I don't know if whether it was, you know, this season he just – it was his routine was all disrupted. You know, we don't know what his hitting could, what he was able to do hitting wise during the break. If he wasn't, maybe he wasn't prepared for the season. I don't know. It's really hard to say, but just watching him mechanically, it looks the same as past years. I mean, he's definitely pressing at the plate, no doubt, but he's just not squaring the ball up at all. And it's just a really, it's just weird to see. And he was someone who, you know, we saw a lot in the minors, even though he's only now there for a short period of time. I just happened to see him a lot in Lowell, Portland, places like that. And I was sold in the power. I wasn't sold in the speed of, you know, him being, he was a good instincts based runner, but I didn't think he was the fastest guy. He was more like an average runner. But I always, as you said, I was just, I thought he could hit because he really knew how to hit. And I just don't believe that he's lost the ability to hit, frankly, you know, I, there has to be something else going on and maybe we'll never know what it is, but yeah, it, it does not make a lot of sense. Ken Rosenthal, bro, oh my God, mess his name up like that every single time. Ken Rosenthal. <laughs> I uh, had a piece today that he wrote about uh, on The Athletic covering teams that might surprise at the deadline. And, Jake, he noted that Benintendi makes a fit with the Indians, but not for Plesak, more for Clevenger mm, because of the years of control and the cost. Yeah, because he's only got two more years after this, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and that I would love that even more than Plesak uh, for the Red Sox to get Clevenger. It would probably take more than just Benintendi, but he does kind of cover – even with Benintendi's struggles, like he's still a natural hitter, and there's a lot of t- players league-wide struggling that we're not used to struggling this year. And I don't know if that could just be like some COVID effects, weird season, no fans, that it's just kind of affecting more players. But obviously now with him being hurt, that adds another loop to it. But I don't think your uh, pipe dream with Benintendi to Cleveland is so far-fetched. Yeah, and you know what? That makes me happy, Keaton, because that makes a lot of sense, and either of those arms would be incredible get for the Red Sox, and I do agree with you. I'd actually prefer Clevenger as well because I think the Red Sox have the financial resources to sign a guy like that as well if they if they want to. Um, I think that something that could make sense here for, for both sides is um, J.D. Martinez and Benintendi 
to to the Indians. And Matt and I talked about this a little bit, but what they're trotting out right right now in Cleveland is pretty pathetic. Uh, Domingo Santana has a 73 WRC plus. He's playing left field. Uh, Tyler Naquin is even worse, a 69 WRC plus. He's been playing right field. And in center field, they have Delano DeShields, who has a 66 uh, WRC plus. Uh, those are not good marks. And, and granted, they have Fran Mil Reyes as their DH right now. But I think if you're the Indians, you're probably okay with saying, hey, Fran Mill, go play left field while J.D. Martinez takes over DH and we add Benintendi to the mix because that outfield is terrible. Well, see, actually, you know, it's funny that you said that because what I was going to suggest is does Benintendi and Kevin Pillar get mm. close? Because they like to, they do like Tyler Naquin, it seems. And, you know, they don't really have a – I mean, they have Jordan Luplo off the bench. But I think Kevin – it's pretty clear that Kevin Pillar would be an upgrade over any of their out, like their bench outfielders. For sure. And, I mean, yeah, uh, Jordan Luplo has a 37 WRC plus this year. So – I wonder if that's something where, you know, you send them Benintendi and Pilar, eat their money, because I, I believe Cleveland does not want to spend. That, I think, is something that we could potentially see um, more. I mean, I don't know if I would do JD plus Benintendi. That just seems like a lot, even if JD was going to opt out. I don't know about you guys, but if you're doing yeah, that, a lot. you're getting Clevenger, but you're just creating another hole that you have to fill with JD next season. Yeah, and I, I totally get that point. I guess the thing is with me, you have to be sure that you think that JD is going to be the hitter you think he's going to be moving forward as he gets older. We have seen the back issues already start with him. And then the other piece here is, do you think you can fill a hole at DH easier with this team in this roster than you can a hole in starting pitcher? Because if we look at the system, there are a lot more guys who kind of fit that DH type role Fair coming point. up. Uh other than, you know, the the role of high-end starting pitcher. You know, you'd rather have Bobby Dahlbeck playing DH sometime or Chavis playing DH or, or somebody like that uh, rather than, you know, looking for starting pitching. It's a fair point. Um, I also think if you look at this year's free agent class, it's not great. I think everyone will acknowledge that. But I think it's what – it's Trevor Bowers, the only pitcher. Like Basically. the only front-line guy. Yeah. You know, after that – like. There are some decent bats, you know, George Springer types, Real Muto. You know, there's a few more bats. And as you said, you know, several teams are running successful platoons at DH. Like, I, I do think it probably is easier to find a DH, whether it be internally or externally. But you're not going to find one of J.D. Martinez of 2019, 2018. It's the question no. is, is J.D. Martinez 2020 what he is in 2021? And that's something that we don't know. Yeah, and that's going to have to be the calculus that, that Bloom runs through. But I think this is a really exciting possibility, um, potentially moving Benintendi. And, and you know, I, I agree with you, Ian. I don't feel like the skills with Benintendi are completely gone. No, I think that he be. just needs – He, I feel like the kid needs a change of scenery. And the other thing with Cleveland is Benintendi's a Cincinnati guy, if I'm not mistaken. So he gets a little closer to home, maybe gets a little bit more comfortable again and starts producing like he should. Yeah, and I think the one thing that we don't know is how serious is his injury because he's missed more than the, the, the 10 days, I believe, as of now. And I know when I when he went on that DL, I wasn't sure if it wasn't just a 10-day you know, mental break or less. You know, he's injured, quote-unquote, but it seems like it's legit if he's still on the DL. So that's, I think, the big question is, you know, is he someone who they need to get back this week to have a few games healthy to showcase teams or are teams comfortable trading off the track record and that he'll be healthy? Yeah. 
it's going to be interesting. That's that's going to be one to watch. Definitely watching Cleveland. Um, all right, let's get to the unlikely candidates here. The not quite untouchable guys, but the guys that I think would would take quite a bit, either because they're maybe not worth that much or because they're worth quite a bit to the Red Sox. Um, the group here is Christian Vasquez, um, good two-way catcher for the Red Sox, $6.25 million, uh, in 2021, and then a club option for $7 million in 2022. Um, that's a great deal for him. Michael Chavis is uh, controlled by the club uh, through 2025, and Jose Peraza through 2022. Um, Keaton, let's start with you. You are someone who loves two things. You love catchers, and you love very squat-first <laughs> base types. Um, yeah. Christian Vasquez is that catcher. Michael Chavis is your boo. Um, are these guys unlikely candidates to you, and why? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I think Chavis is because of his cost and control and his strikeout issues. I'm not sure how much somebody else would want to take it on. I think it's going to be up to the Red Sox to just refine him. Um, Vasquez, I could see being moved if someone is really in the need for a catcher. Uh, they could just use Ploiecki as the bridge to Connor Wong. Um who I guess the reports, and Ian, I guess you could comment on this, the reports are out of the, the alternate site that Wong's actually been pretty impressive. So if they felt that um, they could get some meaningful value somewhere else and just use Ploiecki as kind of a, like a stopgap or maybe even another free agent catcher, um, like they added Luke Roy this year, obviously didn't make it, they also added Ploiecki. Um, I could see Vasquez getting moved, but... Um, I think he's probably in the right spot in the unlikely candidates box there. What do you think about that, uh, Ian? I mean, I mean, Christian Vasquez, I think if he gets traded by the club, um, it's a position where right now in the minor league depth at, at catcher is not good in this system. It got better with Wong, obviously, but it's not strong. And, and also, I think it would take kind of a haul to get Christian Vasquez at this price from the Red Sox. I agree. It's it's a it's a tough one because, as you said, the in they have Connor Wong. Other than that, that there's not a lot, especially in the high minors, and even Connor Wong, while he's someone who is he's playing in the alternative site, he only had a handful of games in Double A next year. You know, he's not someone who's going to be ready to start next season. So if you didn't move Vasquez, you'd need another catcher. Though they do have Ploiecki sneakily. Uh, that trade worked out pretty well, where Ploiecki's looks like a very serviceable backup, and he I believe he has a one more RBR next year. So he would be under control and that I think that they can find a catcher or at least be comfortable to the point where if someone is willing to pay what they're asking for for Vasquez, I would seriously consider it because a couple of things sneakily, he's 30 years old already. Mm. You know, it's not like we're talking about, I, I always forget that because he's just homegrown and for some reason I assume he's younger, but he's been in the system for forever. And Since 2008 now. Exactly. You know, He's not a young kid anymore. He's a veteran. He's, you know, approaching his seventh season. He's 
not that good a hitter still, honestly. Like, I mean, this year he's hitting 258, 289, 419, and most of that is because he had that, what, three-game stretch where he hit all four of his home runs um, in the Mets series and right yeah. around then. Other than yeah, that, he's, he, he's done nothing at the plate this year. You know, it's a 4% walk rate, 30% strikeout rate almost. He's not a good hitter. He's fine defensively, but I think he's replaceable to the point where if a team is willing, like the Padres, for example, are willing to going all in and need a catcher and think he's the difference, I would absolutely consider trading him because I think, as you said, he's the one you could get a lot for too. Well, we're saying a lot. I mean, are we talking about like a top 50 prospect for Christian Vasquez? Probably not, but I think you could probably conceivably ask for someone, you know, a top 100 guy. I mean, we're talking about he's got three years of control at a very reasonable deal, and especially if they're yeah. willing to pay down a little bit. Sure, I think you could ask for a top 100 guy. I mean, catcher on the league is so bad that, right. yes, he's not a good hitter, but it's an 86 WRC+. plus. You know, it's, it's better than a lot of other catchers. And if you look at some of the team, some of the catchers, contenders are running out like the Mets. Wilson Ramos seems like he's toast. Um, Padres, Austin Hedges, I want to say, is hitting 118 this year or something along those lines. You know, Colorado has Tony Walters as their starting catcher. I mean, the Rangers, I don't know who their starting catcher is now because um, Robinson Torinos is on the DL. And not all those teams are contenders, but if you look around baseball, just the state of catcher this year is atrocious. And so if a team is willing to give, you know, top 100 prospect or a couple interesting guys for Vasquez, I think you have to seriously consider it. Yeah, I mean, Keaton and I talked about how we think that Christian Vasquez is probably a top five catcher around baseball at this point. And he certainly has produced at that level. Um, dating back to 2019, he's been worth the fourth most uh, wins above replacement amongst all catchers uh, in baseball behind only Garver. And he's going to pass Garver this year. Garver's been terrible. He's I mean, been awful. And yeah. he's not as good defensively uh, no. as, as Christian Vasquez. The only catchers who you can really say are better on both sides of the ball are Real Muto and, and Grandal. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe a team like the Padres does get desperate and overpays for him. I could definitely see that happening. And I think the more I think about this one, guys, I, I think maybe he gets moved up into the maybe candidates. Oh, I think it's I think it's a maybe, but I think it's unlikely a team will match what the Red Sox want, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because, like, I think the other one that is interesting, though, if we're if – we're, want to move on for Vasquez is Chavis because I'm still not convinced that he he is worth to the Red Sox what he could be to other teams because all it takes is one team to still think that you know he's a guy who can be a not a platoon option which he's pretty much is with the Red Sox I mean I don't know how many at bats he has against the righties this year maybe one of you has it up but the Red Sox are really minimizing his exposure to right-handers and good pitching. I mean, and he has a 42% strikeout rate this year. So like, I'm out on him, Ian. Um, oh, I'm, yeah. I I have very big concerns. You know, he's not a good defender, which we've talked about a long time. I remember back in the day when people were talking about how Rafi, uh, Devers would have to move off third base for Chavis. And I remember trying to explain to people that Devers is a much better defender than Chavis is. But, um yeah, he's not a good defender. He doesn't really have a position. I mean, he's playing, what, second base and some first base this year? But at first base, he's a weird fit because of how short he is. And he's basically not getting time at second base either. No, and he doesn't walk. He has major holes in his swing. Like, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he's someone that gets demoted after the trade deadline. 
like I don't think you if they're the I mean maybe they have to play him because if they move Moreland and things like that. But at some point, I think there needs to be serious discussion about whether or not that roster spot should go to Bobby Dahlbeck and you should see what you have with him. Because what Shavis is doing right now just isn't going to cut it. And I'm not sure how it gets better. You know, he's he's regressed after that initial hot start from last year. It's just been downhill since then. And I don't know if it's a lack of confidence now or what, but what he's doing at the plate right now is just not sustainable at all. And if Bloom so has decided he, he, he doesn't like him and... Uh, sorry, Keaton. Uh, let me just make this quick point. If if Bloom has decided that he doesn't like Javis and he doesn't believe in him long term, that strikes me as a really interesting second piece to add to a deal to get you the player that you really want going forward. Yeah, that's actually probably what would likely be happening there. Uh, for his at bats, though, he actually has more at bats against righties uh, than lefties. He has thirty one against righties, twenty nine against lefties, but he's batting uh, like 85 points higher against righties and both of his home runs or lefties. Both of his home runs have come versus lefties and he has significantly less strikeouts versus lefties. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah. I mean, cause that's what he, like he's a platoon bat, you know, that's kind of what he is right now. And yeah, I don't yeah. know what it just, it's, it's a weird situation with him. Yeah. So the, the thing to, figure out here and this is what i'm kind of like throwing my hands up in the air is like are you selling low on chavis if you sell him now or are you selling high on chavis if you sell him now because this thing can go two ways other teams that might still believe in him like you alluded to ian might catch up to the fact that hey chavis is not very good and then his value goes from what it is now to nothing or you know chavis figures some things out and all of a sudden you've given given away a guy for very little who's controllable through 2025 yeah it's i don't know it it, it's a i think it's one of these ones that's compounded by the fact that there's no in-person scouting this year for other teams Mm -hmm. so if i'm another team and the red Sox are floating him out there that's a red flag to me because they know way more than any other team does about him and when you combine the performance with his availability, that would just be a red flag. That would just be something that would concern me. But I mean, we don't know if he is available or anything, but yeah, I, I just, I don't know. Like at some point, I think you have to just evaluate whether that his, whether that is the best use of that roster spot. You know, you only have 28 spots and after the trade deadline, there's going to be some shuffling. It's going to most likely, you know, I think we all agree that they're going to trade two, three, four guys more. Yeah. And at some point, I think you have to just try someone else in that spot because what he's doing is just, it doesn't fit for what the organization wants to do going forward. Well, it's one that we're going to have to watch for. And, uh, you know, I, I think, Keaton, are you are you mentally prepared for this coming, like, on the heels of Mookie Betts <laughs> being traded? I'm going like, to have to do a wellness check on you. Yeah, I'm not. I may just have to take a day and, you know... <laughs> Well, I think fetal position under the covers. I think that no one's like, you know, people aren't, no one's rooting for him to fail. Like everyone wants him to succeed. Yeah. Um, I think that's just the key thing. You know, it's, it's, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I just, we have a lot of the, the track record is just not encouraging or the data points from the last year and a half after that first month. They're just not, there was a lot of red flags in there. Well, at 11-11, we will wish him the best, as, <laughs> as, as per his favorite thing to do. Um, Jose Peraza. I, I want to ask you about Jose Peraza, Ian, because he is also not very good at baseball um, and, and hasn't been very good uh, with the Red Sox or last year. Uh, he had a stretch 
two years ago where he was decent, but they can technically offer him a contract through arbitration through 2022. But at the rate he's playing, I'm not sure the Red Sox, I'm, I'm not confident they're even going to tender him a contract. What do you, what do you think about Jose Peraza and where he fits with this team going forward? Yeah, I agree. Cause if he's going to be making, you know, he's 2.85 this year, 2.85 million this year. So he'll be closer to 3 million probably next year. I'd much rather have a minimum salary guy like Jonathan Arouse or someone in that spot. Chatham too. I mean, or, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, cause if he's a, he's not a starting caliber player, I think that's pretty evident, you know? And then he's, he's a utility guy who has no power. He has speed, but he doesn't steal bases for some reason. He just makes a lot of weak contact. Like, I, you can find those guys and pay them the minimum. You don't need to be spending like $4 million, $3 million on that type of player. And that, I think, goes back to the roster construction discussion. You know, there has to be a better use for that $3 million. If he's going to be your extra infielder, I'd rather, much rather have CJ Chatham at the minimum and go out and spend that $3 million on a reliever who throws really hard, who yeah. could be a seventh or eighth inning guy. I totally agree. And the reason why I put Peraza in this candidate, uh, unlikely candidates group, is because he is already making more money than I think teams are comfortable with given the bat. But I mean, if the Red Sox are willing to pay down his money this year, and then the the other team obviously has the option on whether or not to tender him a contract going forward, is he someone who teams could target as a defensive replacement, um, you know, down the stretch? I mean, maybe, but at the end of the day, like you look today, Brock Holt got released by the Brewers. Yeah. More or less the same player. You know, a team could just go out and sign Brock Holt. I just, I don't think that there's going to be much of a market for a backup utility infielder. Yeah. Well, that one didn't work out so hot uh, for Heim Bloom. Um, the untouchable group. Let's get to these guys. Uh, the group in which I will riot. If uh, any of these guys are traded, um, Alex Verdugo has been a pleasure to watch all year long. And I was kind of tooting the horn for him coming into this season. It seemed like not only were fans low on him, but a lot of the beat writers were low on him because he wasn't very impressive as he was kind of overcoming his injuries. Um, But he's been electric as a fielder. He's been the firecracker that we needed to top of the lineup. He's just been doing everything. So impressed with him. But then the other guys in this group, Rafael Devers and Xander Bogarts, um, I mean, is there any disagreement from you two? Let me open this up to you guys. Keaton, I think I know how you feel about this, but like, are you with keeping all three of these guys for the next good Red Sox team? Yeah, I am. These were the three guys that I outlined in the, the roundtable last week of guys who are untouchable. It was these three, and then it was also um, Jeter Downs, Wong, and now I can't remember the third. Tristan I would hope. Yeah. Yes, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Um, yeah, and uh, but the three on the major league roster was this three, and I'm, I'd be surprised if um, any of the other writers had other guys in there or left off of the, any of these three, but this should be the core going forward. And Verdugo right now is leading all like Red Sox hitters and everything. So, I mean, he's putting up quite a fight to, to, I mean, he's going to be unfairly compared to Mookie um, for probably the rest of his Red Sox career, um, but he's putting up for now, and that's kind of exactly what you want to see. So I would expect that neither, they should not at all, uh, I don't remember where the Bogarts one started, 
but the general oh it was because they um it was Rosenthal. said that no one was on uh, no one was untouchable which is just gm speak and not actual reality so well, yeah i mean no one should be untouchable like if you know chris archer for example with the race if a team is going to come give you like three potential all-stars <laughs> for chris archer you have to do it yeah. you know what i mean <laughs> but like yeah, of course but like that's the thing like i don't i i agree with keaton there's no you don't trade these three unless you're literally getting like every the a team's entire farm system. I mean every single player. Like <laughs> there's no reason to because at the end of the day the Red Sox want to be competitive. Boston will not sit through a you know Tigers like rebuild or even what the Rays did a few years ago. That's just not going to fly here. They have to be competitive and if you're trading one of these three guys to me that just says you're rebuilding for the next 3 4 years. And that just doesn't work. And though the the reason you traded Mookie Betts was to get the salary flexibility in order to spend it and give long term deals to your good players and to go out and spend in free agency. And we haven't seen a free agent market yet. We don't know what's going to happen with that. But if you trade Mookie Betts and then don't and then out of trading these guys too, then what was the point? Like you know, you're you're getting under the luxury tax to do what exactly? So yeah, yeah I just I don't see any reason you trade these guys. I. I know Devers has been bad this year, but I'm not worried. I, I think that his issues where he came in a little out of shape this year, um, obviously his offseason was disrupted by everything going on. I think he'll be fine long term. And I just think that you have to you have to build around these three as your core. And when it comes to time, you know, when Bogarts needs to be when Bogarts is going to have his opt out, you have to resign him like things like that. This is these are the guys you need to build around. Yeah, I want to talk about Verdugo here for a second, Ian, um, because as, as someone who spends as much time as you do at minor league parks and in watching minor leaguers play and develop, um, has Verdugo exceeded your expectations as to what people wrote about him and, and said about him as he was a prospect coming up with the Dodgers? Um, I mean, he was pretty highly regarded. You know, I think if you look back at his minor league career, he had a he had some injury issues, um, but for the most part, you know, he was a solid performer. It was just a lot of questions about what his power would look like. His career minor league average is almost, I think it's over three hundred. Like the hit tool wasn't the question; it was just the power. And I think we're seeing this year. I mean, he's slugging five forty three. Like he can hit the ball a long way, and I think he's kind of you know he's turned into. If we were playing a full season, I think he would have to be in serious consideration as a potential all star. And I think that's, he's exceeded expectations in that regard because the power has come. But, you know, when you combine, I think he's an above average defender in the outfield. I mean, his, his, uh, he's got, I think the most assists of any outfielder in the league this year, I want to say. He does. Yeah. He's got a legit arm in the outfield. It's a legit hit tool. He can get on base. You know, I think he's a perennial all-star. And even if you just look back in the last season and a half, he's been worth almost four, I think almost four war. Like, that's a heck of a player and you have him under team control at a cheap contract for five years. So yeah, that's like, that's, he's definitely exceeded expectations because he's probably on the high end, I should say closer to the ceiling outcome of what people projected. But I mean, I'm looking at like some of the sites right now that covered the Dodgers system and a lot of them had like a 50 on him future Valley value. He's playing a lot closer to a 60 right now. And you know, I, I think this is legit. And there were some sixes thrown on his hit tool, too. Oh, yeah. The hit tool was the thing. It was just the power. You know, a lot of people had like a 40-45 on the power. The field, he's probably, you know, he's not an elite defensive center, uh, right fielder, but he's, he's he's above average, I would say. The arm is a weapon. And I think it was just, yeah, that people were unsure about how the game power would play. And, I mean, 
even if you look back to last season, yeah, he did slug 475. But this season, I think he's kind of taken it up another level when it comes to driving the ball. And yeah, I, I think it's he's someone who you know the ISO is up to up a lot. Like I think it's all it's up up on the up from here. And he's someone who you as you build your team around. You know, he's not gonna. I don't think he'll be the best player on a championship team. But do I think he could be someone who hits in the top four? Sure. You know, watching him has made me actually even more bullish on Jaron Duran because Jaron Duran. In his new setup, as you've pointed out on Twitter a lot, holds his hands almost identical to the way that Verdugo is holding his hands. And he's been able to generate quite a bit of power uh, with this new new swing. Yeah, uh, the, it's it's an interesting comparison. I hadn't actually really thought about looking comparing their stances. Because um, when I, when you see Verdugo's stance, I think the, I mean, sorry, uh, Durant's stance, the new one. A lot of people have been in my mentions have been talking about it looks a lot like Anthony Rizzo which it does the way Mm -hmm. he keeps his hands low to start but as you said yeah he's really driving the ball and the advantages he's going to have on Verdugo is he's much faster Um, you know Verdugo is in on according to StatCast in the 69th percentile for sprint speed I would guess Duran will be in the 90th plus percentile for sprint speed when he's eventually up there and I mean he's like a 70 runner legit and defensively it's still a work in progress a little bit but this power that is legit he's just crushing the ball in every game i watched i think i put up a video on my twitter showing um him hitting a home run pulling one and then going the other way with one and you know he's hitting the ball the other way 400 plus feet i don't think i've ever seen him hit the ball that far the other way before he's squaring the ball up you know 106 miles an hour 390 feet to right field that's Trent Grisham stuff, right? Yeah, there. he just, he, it's just things that he did not do. And he's talked about a lot in the Zoom sessions after the workouts. You know, he, he worked with a hitting coach this year. They worked on lowering his hands to increase his launch angle and for him to be able to get the balls on the inner half. And if you saw him in Portland last year, his big issue was if he had a fastball up on his hands, he just rolled it over because he just, yeah. he, he just couldn't get around on it. And with this new setup, he's just, his hands are so much quicker. And his, he's a big kid, you know. I think something with Duran that, people forget is he's like 6'2", 6'3", 210 pounds, and he's absolutely ripped. Hmm. You know, he, we're not talking about like a 5'10", scrappy outfielder. He should have had power. It was just he got Long Beach State swinged in college, and then, you know, in pro ball, it just it takes a lot to switch out of that, and finally this offseason, he made that change with that hand position, and it's just made the world of difference. I, I like that you've made Long Beach State into a verb now. I mean, it is. It's, a thing. it's like a known thing, the Long Beach State <laughs> swing, because the way they play is it works for college baseball. Don't get me wrong, but the track record of Long Beach State position players coming to the major leagues is not good. And there's a reason why Jaron Duran, with as much physical ability as he had, was a seventh round pick who signed for 180,000. Well, great find by the Red Sox there. Um, since we made Keaton sad earlier about the Michael Chavis stuff, can you pump up what handing center field over to Jaron Duran might look like next year? And do you think that there's a possibility? that we could do that. And, and Keaton, I, I think I speak for, for you there when I say that would make you very happy, right? It would. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a very good chance that that's what's going to happen. I think that the things that people need to remember is he's not going to be Jackie Bradley defensively. Duran, he, his reads are still inconsistent. He was a second baseman until two years ago. You know, he had never played the outfield. So there are going to be some bumps on the road defensively, but his speed is electric it puts a ton of pressure on the defense. And if this power is legit, there's a, the path to an everyday player is a lot clearer now than it was last season. 
And I, I, you know, I was someone who I've seen a lot of Duran and I wasn't sold. He was an everyday player. And I talked to a ton of scouts who'd seen him and they weren't either. And it all came back to, I'm not sure he has the ability to impact the baseball and he's not a good enough defender to make up for it. But if he can impact the baseball and he's someone who you can trust to hit, you know, 15 home runs a year, drive the ball slug, you know, mid 400s, that's a much different story. And we'll kind of let the defense, if it only plays at average, that's fine. So, yeah, I, I think there's a pretty good chance that he's on the roster at some point next season. I'm not sure if they would hand over opening day, but I think that he has a much better chance of being the Red Sox starting center fielder at some point next season now than he did, um, I'll say, when we started the season, you know, back in March in spring training. Well, you know who else was a second baseman before transitioning to the outfield? Um, Marcus Lynn Betts. <laughs> Jared Duran, MVP, 2025, lock it in. <laughs> Until he gets traded to the Dodgers, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, man. That would break Keaton for sure. Um, that's really that's really cool to, to see that uh, the Red Sox are, are kind of maximizing him there. And uh, it's exciting to think about having him in the outfield. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ian, but you know, a, a guy with the ability to hit and that type of plus speed, reads are something that you can work on yes. with coaches and get better at mm-hmm. you know as you're in the major leagues yeah Def- defensively you can improve in the outfield and he's made great strides when he first started um they actually had to play him in right field because it was the same line as second base and so it was much easier for him to read the ball off the bat starting off in right field so that's why he played right field for his first couple of, or his first year in the org then they transitioned to the center because you're not going to put a 70 runner in right field it just doesn't make sense really yeah. And so he also doesn't have a good arm. He's like a 40 arm. So it, it profiles better in center field. But yeah, with a 70 speed, he can make up for a lot of his mistakes and errors. But it's just you're not going to see those, you know, those plays where Jackie Bradley just casually catches it on the run. And yeah. you're like, oh, how did he get there? Those are the ones that he's going to have trouble with and will will take some getting used to. But it's definitely something that can be improved upon. Well, that's really interesting. Um all right, let's let's uh t- two more things before we move on to kind of the less interesting guys here. Rafael Devers, um, he's somebody that Keaton and I have talked about a lot this year, and a ton of listeners have been asking us whether or not Rafael Devers will eventually be moved off of third base because of errors, and it's something that I believe Keaton and I are a little bit split on, right, Keaton? I mean, last time we talked, what was your take about? Devers uh, moving off the position eventually. I think it was greater than 50% within the next three years. Right. And and for me, I thought that, you know, he had, he, it would be way less than 50% for him to move off in the next three years. Um, because to me, looking at his errors, it just seems like a lot of them are more mental than they are just an inability to get to the ball or, or throw effectively. Um, I wanted to get your take on Rafael Devers. You've seen a lot of his defense in the minor leagues. What are the Red Sox going to do with him? You can't have him making errors at the rate that he's making them this year. So how likely is it to you that he actually moves off the position? I think a lot of it's going to come down to conditioning. Um, I mean, it's pretty clear this year he didn't come into the season in the greatest shape. The Red Sox were pretty upfront about that because remember back was it during the spring training 2.0. He was sent over to BC to work out for a few days because they said they needed him to work on some things. That was pretty clearly because they just it was he just did, didn't look like himself when he came into camp this year. And I think that's definitely contributed to his defensive struggles. I also think that 
we talked about a little bit earlier, but having Michael Shave as a first base does not do him any favors either. He's not exactly the most accurate thrower. He does have a very strong arm, but it's a lot easier to throw when you have a 6'3 target at first base than when you have someone who's 5'9", 5'10". Um, but I think if Devers gets himself back into game shape like he was last season, then I don't have any qualms about him sticking at third for the foreseeable future. And for me, that's, you know, someone who, for the his if he's with the Red Sox next three, four, five years, he can stick at third. But if what he is this season physically is kind of what is going to be the new norm for him, then I think that, yeah, definitely you have to, at some point, it's going to be a discussion that's going to have to be had. That would make things really interesting for the discussion on whether or not you try super hard to trade J.D. Martinez, too, because if all of a sudden you have to play Rafael Devers at DH or first base, if you don't think that he can play third base long term, you know, with especially with Casas coming up, that's that could get kind of dicey. Yeah, I mean, for me, I still think that there's a greater than 50 percent chance he can stick a third base long term. But again, it's one of these things that I think he has the skills to do it. And the ability, it's just the conditioning aspect is not something that we can predict. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the tools are there to be an average third baseman with, you know, a plus to better arm. But that's the off the field or, you know, the, how he works out during the offseason is something out of our control. And that's, I think, what is going to ultimately decide his future defensively. Is this the offseason then with his value being what it is right now to sign him to the Acuna ex- extension for the Red Sox? I mean, if he would take it, I absolutely would do that. Yeah, I, I think that if you can get a discount based on this season to him, I think it's something you have to seriously consider. Do you think that that's going to be their priority one in the offseason is to lock up Devers? If it was me, it probably would, because I don't think you're going to have any traction with Bogarts because Scott Boris. Um, Edward, I would have said Eduardo Rodriguez, but I would not be comfortable giving him a long-term deal, unfortunately, now because of what happened this year. You know, we need to see him back on the mound healthy before I'd be willing to do that. And Verdugo has too much team control to even consider doing that. So, yeah, I think it's something that you, they will seriously explore. All right. Uh, let's get down to the last person here that we should talk about. Xander Bogarts. Um, Ken Rosenthal wrote about the possibility of trading him because he gets no trade rights on September 6th. He can opt out after 2022. He's making $20 million per year uh, through 2025 with a vesting option for 2026. Uh, Xander Bogarts means everything to this team. He is a solid defender at shortstop. He is an ever-improving hitter um, at shortstop. He is a team leader. He's become more vocal over the years. Uh, he's a very handsome man, um, you know, so he's going to be attracting those fans. Uh, Xander Bogart's pretty much the perfect player. He also showed a willingness to sign a below market deal with the Red Sox. He's shown a willingness to work with these guys. Why on earth are we talking about the potential of trading Xander Bogart's? Like, how is this a thing in 2020? Is this just another terrible thing of 2020 or, or like... Am I missing some type of reason in the world where this is a good idea? Nope. <laughs> I, I, just, I just don't see it. I mean, Ian, am, am I missing something? It's it's kind of crazy, right, to, to even entertain this? Yeah, I mean, as I, I think I said it earlier, the only reason you'd entertain it is if you're going full rebuild. And if you're doing that, you're trading Devers, you're trading, you know, Bogart. Oh, sorry, you're trading Bogarts, you're trading Devers, you're, t- you're trading Ebron. And they're not going to do that. So I just, yeah, I don't, I don't see any way he gets traded. 
And, and can you talk about the difference too in the tone of how these two players in uh, Xander Bogarts in Mookie Betts have approached their upcoming free agency and their willingness to deal with the Red Sox? I mean, these these two things, based on their history, have seemed like kind of apples and oranges in the way that they have shown a willingness to to entertain signing long term deals. Yeah, I mean. Obviously, you know, Bogarts is willing to take, as you said, a below market deal to get locked in long term. He did get the opt out, which is very smart on his behalf. But I think the difference is that Mookie Betts is a top three player in the game, whereas Bogarts is not on that same tier. And when it comes to Mookie Betts, you know, he felt that he had that obligation, he felt to his fellow players to go out and set the market with his deal. Whereas Bogarts is not someone who's setting the shortstop market. You know, the person who's going to be doing that now, it looks like, is Fernando Tatis or Francisco Lindor, you know, those are the two deals that will be setting the market. And so I think that Betts just, he was someone who the Red Sox, for right or wrong, they kind of had some some contentious negotiations. I mean, there was Red Sox for some reason, and I think it was an arbitration, decided to offer him or wanted to give him a lot less than he wanted. And they didn't give him his raises earlier in his career. You know, things like that, I think kind of, they maybe didn't sour him, but guys remember that. And then when it came to his decision for free agency, you know, he had a number in mind and it didn't matter what the market looked like or, you know, what other, what the Red Sox were willing to do. I think he just wanted to go to free agency and that was his idea. And that's what he, you know, he was set on that. And at the end of the day, you know, obviously COVID changed things and that's why he signed long-term with the Dodgers for a lot of money and a lot of years. But Bogarts, you know, he, someone who he, wasn't as highly regarded coming out. He didn't get as much. I mean, he got, I guess they got similar money coming up, but Bogart's just, he was comfortable in Boston and he was willing to take it. And I think the biggest thing though, is just they're on different tiers or calibers of player. And Bogart's didn't feel that need to, you know, set the market for his peers. You know, he was comfortable with the money he was getting, whereas Betts felt as someone who's, I think is one of the faces of baseball that he had to get to free agency in order to reset the market there. Sure looks damn good playing for the Dodgers, too. I mean, right? I yeah, it's say. insane. He's killing it. It's, it's not surprising. I mean, he's going to be a stud for the next 10, 11, 10 years, whatever. You know, maybe the last two years of the contract are bad, but the Dodgers won't care because he's going to be incredible for the next, you know, decade there. Keaton, you okay over there, buddy? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. I mean, but it, it, Keaton, I'm guessing you were anti-trade? Yeah. Well, what would you have rather he played this – two month season and then walked away in the off season then because if because no, if that I, happens then they're set back even farther than they are now because you don't have Alex Verdugo who's probably their best outfielder and you don't have Jeter Downs who's arguably their top prospect so yeah we've just we've talked about this a ton and I just I disagree that he was going to free agency regardless I don't think that the Red Sox made a good faith effort to try and sign him and the last time they made an offer was before the 2019 season and then there was nothing uh, in the next offseason, and then they, they dealt him. And I felt from the beginning that if the, the market was already set for him, that uh, Harper had 330, Trout had his was 426 and a half or whatever, mm-hmm. and that somewhere in between there, probably like 260 to 280 would get it done. You mean th- that ended up being what he signed for, and COVID definitely affected yeah. it. But I, yeah, I'm anti-trade and just anti the way the Red Sox front office went about it. Fair enough. I think that they they could have stopped him from going to free agency, but they didn't make an effort to do so. Fair. All right. Well, um, no more bets trade because 
Uh, we're going to make a lot of our listeners sad. Um, the, the last category of guys that I threw together before we get to our couple of listener questions here is just, um, I assume the rest of the roster here, the, the guys that we didn't mention, are all available if any team wants them as part of a throw-in. But I did mention five guys, uh, all from the bullpen, who I think the Red Sox will probably endeavor to keep and probably won't garner enough attention um, from other teams uh, in order to you know, warrant a trade. Uh, those are Phillips Valdez, who has impressed this year with his fastball changeup combo, Darwin's and Hernandez, who you know battled COVID and is now going to be pitching again. Austin Bryce, who I really don't like watching him pitch aesthetically, but he's been okay. Um, Josh Taylor, who also battled COVID, and then Colton Brewer, who signed through 2024, or at least uh, team control arbitration years through 2024, has looked decent at times. Uh, he's the one who came over from the Padres. Um, what did you guys think about this list of five players? Do you think that any of these guys is likely to get traded? Or, or do you think that these five represent people who are going to be part of the bullpen going into next year? So I have possibly a hot take here. Ooh, but I like hot takes. I kind of expect Matt Barnes to be traded. And with that move, I'd like to see Phillips Valdez close. Ooh. I like um, it. That's a I have been super impressed with him. And I'm like fully on his bandwagon now. Came out of nowhere. I mean, he's a skinny fella, but all he does is get guys out, and it's amazing. And I never thought that with the construction of the Red Sox open that they'd have somebody like that. Um, like, to me, he's one of the, like, two most reliable arms in the bullpen right now. And so I'd like to just see what he can do as a closer for a bit. What do you think about that, Ian? I, I, know, I assume you've gotten to see all of these guys, including Phillips Valdez. I mean, what do you think about this group? It, it's an interesting um, take, and I actually, I when Keaton brought him up, I, I did a little, his exit, his stack cast data is very impressive. I don't know if either of you have looked at it, but he does a very, he just doesn't give up hard contact at all. That's exactly it. Yeah. And he gives, he whiffs guys at an above average rate. K rate's about average, but yeah, I mean, I think these are the type of guys that the only re- the only way you can you consider trading them is if you're packaging them with another player to get a significant prospect back if that makes sense you know if a team's like we want Benintendi and Phillips Valdez and we'll give you you know Mike Clevenger or we'll give you you know a top couple top prospects then that's how they get moved i cannot see them getting dealt like on their own because you need bullpen arms and all of this is the type of bullpen arms I personally like to build around. You know, they're all guys who are going to be making the minimum or in their RB years. None of them are going to be expensive. And that's what you should be looking for. You know, you want these, that's why they went out and got all these guys was to try to build a bullpen cheaply. And right here, if, you know, if the fact that if they can come into the next off season with five guys locked into the bullpen who are all under team control for several more years, that's a really good start. And, something they can really build around and makes filling those gaps a lot easier. And it's a lot more palatable if you're going to go out and sign a guy for three, 4 million for one of the more leveraged roles. So, yeah. You should almost never be paying for bullpen help. Uh, yes, I agree. You know, and, and that's one thing that I already have liked about Heim Bloom too. And I totally agree with you, Keaton. He has been the lone bright spot. I mean, how many times have we on this podcast together talked about Phillips Valdez? It is far more than I would have expected coming into this season. It's pretty much every time there's some new yeah. glowing Phillips Valdez thing that we talk about. But the way he uses that changeup to induce weak contact, it's just been brilliant. It's great. 
And I, I never thought that with the arms in the bullpen that I would be like drawn to any of them, but I am significantly drawn to Valdez. <laughs> yeah, he's he's very exciting. Well, I, I think it, it's interesting. Um, something worth with him is you know you talked about a lot um, the usage of pitches and you know how it changes for uh, how the Red Sox have changed it for certain people. And um, I need to. Uh, bring him up sorry i clicked on for amber valdez for some reason um but if you look at that's fair he's pretty good too yeah but if you look at his pitch usage you know last season he was throwing a sinker almost like 50 almost 60 percent of the time and his changeup was in like the 30s and this season he's throwing a sinker less than his changeup and i think that's an example of what the red sox you know they identified something that they really liked with him and they brought him in, and, you know, his slider usage has increased, but his sinker usage has decreased 16%, and his changeup usage has increased 12%. And that's why that you're seeing them constantly churning and burning guys at the bottom, at the at the back of their roster with relievers is they bring these guys in and say, hey, this is what we think will make you good, and some guys it takes, some guys it doesn't, and he's one of the guys that dropping his sinker usage and pitching off his changeup has really taken to it, and he's just done a great job, as you said. Just He does not give up hard contact at all. It's remarkable. And, yeah, I, I, I think he's someone who deserves a shot and more leverage opportunities going forward. It's going to be interesting to see how they fill that closer role, especially with Matt Barnes on the hot seat potentially to be traded. And, and even if he's not, I – trust phillips valdez a whole hell of a lot more with the ninth than i trust matt barnes right now i'll tell you that (laughs) if i was them i would give darwinson a shot but it seems they want to try and stretch him out which i'm not very much i'm not really in favor of but i think darwinson has that mentality that you want in a closer and he's a two-pitch guy that i and he misses bats to the point where i think it's something could be a legit weapon there but i also get if you can turn him into like a two three inning guy that's probably more valuable but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they do if Barnes does get traded with that back end of the bullpen. Absolutely. Um, we got two quick listener questions here that we'll get to before we go on and get on out of here. Um, the first one comes from Corey, and he says, do you think anyone on this active roster or in the system at all is around the next time the Red Sox win the World Series? Uh, Ian, as our guest of honor, do you want to take this one? Um. Yeah, I, I mean... I don't think the Red Sox. I I think they're not they're not close. Don't get me wrong. In terms of the current active roster, obviously is not competitive. But do I think with some tweaking, some shrewd movement, and you know having High and Bloom kind of do what he does, do I think they could be there in the next three years? Absolutely. And if you're talking in the next three years, I think there's several guys on the big league roster. I mean, I think the big three, obviously the Bogarts, Redugo, Devers group, but I think a lot of the prospects, you know. The system isn't great, but there's guys coming through that I really like. You know, we've talked a lot about the guys, most of them, but, you know, Duran, Downs, Casas. Those are all guys that I think could be, you know, average, at least to potentially above average major league regulars. And so I do think there's a chance that there's several guys um, because I I don't think – I think the Red Sox, yes, they're not good this year, but I have a very strong inkling that next year's Red Sox team is going to look radically different and they're going to be competitive and spending once again this offseason. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, Keaton, what's your take on that? Do you fall more in line with, you know, this turnaround is going to be a lot quicker than we think? Yeah, I do. And we talked about, I can't remember if it was the last podcast or the one before, but we talked about how 2022 is probably like the next best chance, but it's still a really good chance. And um, all things considered, I guess you probably, hopefully J.D. Martinez is still there. That'll be the last year of his thing. 
but if he's there along with that core and those young guys getting some experience this year, maybe next year, yeah, I think it's it's going to be quicker than we think. I guess the numbers would just tell you in general winning a World Series is really hard. So the, I guess the Vegas money would be on no, but uh, you know if the Red Sox spend along with these guys that they're bringing up, yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah. All right, last question tonight comes from the big man, and he says, should we be rooting for the Red Sox to lose at this point so we can get the draft pick? I assume he means a, a good draft pick, not just one. There's They give out a couple of these things. Um, Ian, you're the draft guy here, I mean, with the, the, the prospects and all this stuff. There is some potential, though, that there could be a real anchor in uh, the Red Sox plans here with... Rob Manfred having the ability yeah. to basically not award picks in the order of team standings this year. Yeah, that's it's concerning. Uh, I think it was Peter Gammons kind of just tweeted it out at 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning or something, just <laughs> casually, that um, that Rob Manfred has the right to determine the draft order since they're not playing 81 games, and there's a decent chance they do it by average, or they, they, they combine 2019 and 2020 records and base it off that. And if I'm the Red Sox, I'm going to be. I would be livid if that's the case. But I think that's also why there's no point in just ultra tanking. Like you don't play to lose. You know these guys are competitors, and you have enough pieces on this team that they're not going to be bad enough to be worse than the Pirates. So I think at the end of the day, what you do is you do what they're doing. You trade the guys you need to to for prospects or for guys for the future. And then you run out the young guys and you see what happens over the last month. And if they win more games than you expected, that means they were probably performing and that gives you some momentum heading into next year. And if not, you're bad. And that's, you know, you get a top 10 pick, hopefully. But I would not like, you know, actively try to have the worst record in the league. No, because I just don't think it's possible. And there's too much uncertainty with what the draft order is. Yeah, and I'm not even sure there's like a good uh, phrase that we could even use for like tank for rocker or lighter or... Lose for lighter, I guess. Lose I don't know. I, I, I would say that either of them would look really nice in the Red Sox system. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, it would be uh, – it would be if they can somehow end up with, like, the second or third pick in this next year's draft, it wouldn't be the worst outcome for this season, especially if they can somehow find a way not to lose another pick, which would be cool. Um, yeah, who's, who's that high school bat that's potentially going to be yeah, like... Yeah, it's the shortstop from Michigan. I don't remember what his name is, but yeah. yeah blanking on his name But right like their, next year's draft at the top looks pretty interesting, and it's a lot of guys at positions they don't really have. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully it's hopefully it's not included 2019 standings, otherwise the Red Sox are in trouble. But if it's just 2020, you know, I think you just play it out and you finish where you do, but you do trade away the guys that, you know, a lot of the guys we talked about that they're likely to trade are guys that would help them win, and the guys you're plugging in there are unlikely to be any better. So I wouldn't outright tank, but you can artificially do it via trade deadline shenanigans. You know, if those Vandy boys go go one two, that'll be the first time in history teammates have ever gone one two in the draft. There you go. That'd be that, pretty cool. It would be interesting. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I just yeah, I, I'm never in favor of outright tanking. I just don't I don't believe in it. I don't think it's good to create the mentality of we don't want to win games. That just is against every competitive like bone in people's bodies. I just don't like that attitude. And look at the Sixers. Still losing well, exactly. to the Celtics. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that about does it for our podcast today. Um, news, notes, reminders, all this good stuff. 
Um, you can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow Ian uh, at Ian Kundal. You can also follow Sox Prospects on Twitter and listen to Ian's podcast with Chris Hatfield, uh, the Sox Prospects podcast. It is invaluable resource for you, so please do that. Um, Keaton, what are you working on it over the monster right now? Uh, just roundtables. Nice. And yeah, podcasts. We're running the roundtables every week, so we have a different question. So all of our writers are weighing in there. If you haven't checked out that, uh, do so. I'm still planning on writing a Don't Trade Xander piece, which should come out this week. Um, it'll look better or else I'm not going to write it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, yeah, you can also find all of our podcasts on the Over the Monster Podcast Network. Uh, Matt and I still have our untitled show, uh, which comes out on, what was that, Wednesdays now? Um, Keaton and Shelly have the awesome pre-cap podcast, which previews and recaps uh, the upcoming series for the Red Sox. We've got Toronto this week, so I think you guys just recorded that one, um, so check that out. And then, obviously, this is, uh, has been our flagship show on, on the Over the Monster Podcast Network for a long time, the Red Seat. So we hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, tune in, rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. And, uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining us once again. No problem. It was a lot of fun. All right. That'll do it. So we'll be with you next time. Bye.